Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the robotics community of Australia. Today is episode 136, and it's also the first episode of 2024. So wherever you are in the world, I wish you well, and I hope you have a spectacularly good year. My focus this year will be predominantly on companies that have joined as members to Robotics Australia Group, which is, of course, the peak body for robotics in Australia. And today I have Dr. Clive Webster with me. He's the founder and CEO of Crest Robotics. He's a roboticist and he's an entrepreneur. Clyde, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Nikki. Uh, Happy New Year to you. Yeah, and to you too. So it's, uh, it's been quite the start of the year for us so far, but um, we're getting there. <laughs> getting oh, it's it. fantastic. <laughs> I always, I always say to my kids, you know, start as you mean to finish. I don't know what that means, but anyway, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> You've got a PhD in robotics engineering. Tell us a little bit about your journey and your interest in robots. Yeah, sure. Well, um, geez, interest in robots has been around a while, and just engineering in general. But probably since. Roughly when I started my mechatronics engineering degree, roughly 13 years ago, sort of always held the opinion that uh, robots are really just tools, right? Human, all throughout human history is you know, earmarked with development of new tools and our progression as a society. And for me, robotics is really just an extension of that. And it's an opinion I've held a long time throughout my degree. And so when I finished my undergraduate degree, I wasn't really satisfied actually with, with where I was in terms of what I'd learned in technology and robotics so far. And I would had developed a similar sort of dissatisfaction with working, really pursuing other people's interests. And I thought, I want to keep learning and I want to keep pursuing my own interests. So I'm going to do a PhD. And that was my, <laughs> my particular reasons. There's lots of reasons to do a PhD. That was mine. And I just stumbled upon some really interesting problems in robotics, uh, spe- specifically with how we get robots to climb really tall structures and how we get them to hold tools to perform physical labor. And so I started that PhD in 2016. Uh, I've sort of, it's been a long journey, I think six and a half years to submission for me. So I submitted December, 2022. And the final, final, final submission after all the processes is actually a couple of days. Oh, fantastic. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah, so I've been waiting in the last year on like, we had six months of review and then they say, well, you've got to give us the, you know, you've passed and everything, but just fix these little things up. Yeah. Uh, and then you're done. Uh, and so that's that's finally really finished after about a seven year, seven and a half. Well, congratulations. I mean, it's um, it, I don't actually think it matters how long it's taken. It's the fact that you've you committed to it and you finished it. That's right. As we were talking about earlier, one step at a time. Just keep moving forward, and uh, you get there in the end. <laughs> yeah. Actually, my son is uh, my son is doing his thesis at Melbourne University. My children don't listen to the podcast. So I, I feel free to say whatever <laughs> I like about my children, and he's in the process of writing up his thesis, and he's uh, in the introductory stage. And he, he said, "You know, I I've got all the the material, but it's this introduction that's doing my head in." And I said to man, "Just get the draft down." Don't worry about it because more than likely you're going to rewrite it. Oh, big time. Yeah. And this is the way I write as well. Like uh, my supervisor can attest to this because he's picked up papers of mine, read the first in- the introduction and gone, oh, wow, this is really well written. Yeah, you did this, right? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, who wrote the next bit? I'm like, no, no, that was me as well. I just haven't reviewed that. You know, you've, you've seen five iterations of the introduction and my first draft of the next bit and they're never good. They're never good at all. Oh, that's so funny. So tell us, where did you do your PhD and who was your supervisor? Yep. So I did my PhD at the University of Technology, Sydney. My supervisor 
supervisor, Professor Robert Fitch, and my co-supervisor is Dr. Felix Kong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've actually met uh, Robert. I think he's moved on. He was at the at Botany Bay. He was. I think he's still managing yep, yep. that there, he's, but uh, I think yep. he's got something else now as well. Yep. So he's the, currently the director of TS Tech Lab out of Botany, and I think he's recently been given the Defence uh, Innovation Network uh, director role as well. Yes. Uh, congratulations, Rob. If you're listening to this, uh, like I saw that, and well done. Yeah. So, how many uh, how many PhD students were in your cohort? Ooh, we all started at different times, and I was a lot slower than most. So, for those who don't know, the way a sort of PhD works is uh, they enrol you, they give you a four year sort of deadline, and say you need to finish before then. Then they give you three years worth of funding. And you go, okay, cool. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and the fourth year, you've used slave labor. I, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's not really. It's kind of just like you can apply for additional funding. And there's, yeah. there's avenues and stuff. But, yeah, so most of the people that started when I started have finished already. But I, I took a bit of a slower route. And that's because I decided, well, I just wanted to do a bit of work while I did it. So throughout my PhD, I've always held teaching jobs. I've always I've done a lot of research engineering and mechatronics engineering professionally. Did a short stint with NASA JPL as a visiting researcher. Spent two years as the lead assembly integration and test engineer for the space machine company, who are also at UTS Tech Lab. So I've, I've really sort of padded the PhD out with a lot of other work. Partly that's because of funding. Uh, partly that's because um, really I've been trying to upskill myself, you know, yeah. and a real, real genuine engineering jobs and problems are a really good way to, to keep learning. Uh, yeah, outside that's of the it. academic context. I agree with you. Nothing better than getting problems and getting stuck in and doing them. So tell us a little bit about your um, time at NASA as a visiting researcher. How did this all happen? Yeah, so it was it was really just a connection through Rob at the end of the day. So I, Rob, Rob and I have sort of different technical uh, specialties. And so Rob being the really good supervisor he's been, whenever I had a problem he couldn't answer, he'd put me in contact with someone he knew that could give me some. And so we were talking about how to model dynamics for complex multi-body robotic system. And he said, you should talk to Will. Will's one of my previous students at ACFR, and he's now a, a robotics technologist at NASA JPL. And so he, he made the intro and we had a chat. And really, I just went into that meeting trying to get advice, right? I was looking for any sort of support I could get, you know, something to point me in the right direction, a bit of a discussion on technical uh, details. And really, I think Will just took a liking to me and my enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end of the meeting, he was like, hey, if you ever want a, if you ever want a job or something, you know, yeah. with us, you know, just let me know. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. You know, I'll play, I'll play that cool. And about two weeks later or something, I was like, yes, so you got that you know, job? Let's get a job. You know, I was in the middle of my PhD at the time. And I was like, yeah, I'll take six months off, uh, whatever. Like, uh, when that, when that, you know, when, when that door opens, I think you just got to kind of like go through it as quickly as you can without looking in any other direction. I think so. You know, I, I, isn't there some people that go, this is the year, say yes to everything. Of course, <laughs> not yes to drugs and things. I'm not advocating that. Unless, you know, that's your scene. But like generally speaking, you say yes to things that even though it frightens the hell out of you, you go, I'm doing it. And yeah. I, even if I have to, you know, go and learn stuff before, I'm, I'm actually able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so with this work I did, so it was really just like a visiting researcher thing. It was unfortunate that it happened during the middle of the COVID lockdowns. So yeah. traditionally, I would have actually gone over to JPL and worked there with them. But even my supervisor, he couldn't get on site. 
Yeah. Everything's completely locked down. International travel was locked down. And so what I did instead was the entire thing remotely. And I spent sort of, I think it was five months in the end, waking up at about 6 a.m., trying to match their hours, wow. uh, trying to integrate with their team sort of just online as much as I possibly could. And so whilst I probably didn't get the full experience of being able to say I was physically there, it was still an incredible experience. I think the first or second week I was at JPL, they landed Perseverance yeah. uh, on Mars, which was just incredible. I'm not sure if people are sort of, how many people are really aware of the details of how they land a rover on Mars, but it's yeah. it's absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. And it's all autonomous and the whole operation is finished before the engineers and um, command centers even start receiving the first telemetry. Like, so yeah. it's it's like... Oh no, has everything gone right? Please, has it gone right? And yeah. Um, yeah, it was flawless in the end and just absolute marvel to, to sort of be a part of that sort of environment. It's quite interesting that you say you did it remote. Like, what did you learn about yourself during this experience? I learned that I can, I can change and adapt if I really need to. It's not the first time I've learned that lesson, but I think it's a lesson you need to continue learning yeah. over the years. Actually, the sort of working at JPL probably wasn't the biggest challenge I had at the time. So I'd, I've been going through some really severe back issues at the same at the same time, and I pretty much couldn't spend more than an hour standing at any given any given time. So whilst working from home, I was also dealing, you know, with a herniated disc, uh, and I was extremely fortunate to be in a job where I could work remotely and I could do work without having to be physically on site somewhere, because you know it would have been completely, you know, just crippling, like mentally, really, to yeah. just be able to do nothing. And some of my experience there <laughs> uh, will touch on in terms of the company and what Crest is doing, why sort of trying to reduce harm, physical labor is really yeah. sort of personal and important to me. But I think the key thing I learned at GPL was how good a work environment can be. Yeah. So one of the key things that they did was a 980 work week. So every second Friday, the entire place shut down, nobody works. And um, I'm going to adopt that at Crest when we, when we, everyone's sort of full time because it was excellent. You know, it, it really sort of gives people a bit of their life back and doesn't make their entire job about work. And I think that's extremely important to how you think and in maintaining a level of creativity, which is really important for engineers and just, you know, having a very sustainable and comfortable life. So that's probably what I learned the most. You know, there's some really good ideals in terms of how they approached work and how they sort of spoke up, constantly tried to improve to make the work, the workplace better. You know, I was about to say, since COVID, I think for a lot of people that have got jobs that they don't need to be in a in a work environment, like i.e. engineers. Engineers generally, I think, need to be on site because you're tinkering with stuff, you're building stuff, and I think it's just conducive to have engineers together. But for other people, um, their work weeks have changed so drastically in terms of the hours that they actually work. And if you consider they, you know, the commuting that you would have done isn't part of your work day anymore so you could actually start working at seven o'clock and maybe finish at three o'clock which i'm not saying that people are doing but it is a bit of an ongoing issue i think going forward for companies though to manage this um, in terms of people's productivity at home and mm. i'm not absolutely convinced that it's increasing i think it worked well for COVID. I think it just showed how amazingly resilient and, you know, entrepreneur and people can innovative and we can do things. But I th actually think there's a lot of value for people being together because it's the informal chats at the water and the coffee and, you know, those sort of conversations that can, the light bulbs can go on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And those, those are incredibly important. And I think, um, I think one of the key parts about sort of implementing a sort of working from a strategy is sort of 
uh, encouraging those similar sort of behaviors because nothing says sort of more informal chats can't happen when you're working remotely. It just requires a bit of a shift in terms of how people socialize, Yeah. right? Like it, it might be a mandated, oh, okay, when you start working them, you have to say hello to some, yeah. anyone, find someone, say, yeah. hello, I've started working, yes. <laughs> you know, have, have informal chats, right? It's, it's not something you can't do remotely. It's just not something we're used to um, yeah. because, you know, we're used to being at the computer and scheduling meetings. And um, so I think, there's more to explore there. And I certainly agree that I've had incredible impromptu chats in the office that have been really, really valuable. But I've also people seen people and engineers, especially are prone to this, make work their entire lives, become mm. dissatisfied yeah. and leave. And nothing is more disruptive to a project uh, in engineering than an employee, uh, sorry, an employee leaving. Yeah. That causes much more disruption than yeah. it needs to. And even just, you know, the sort of mental duress People are in just dealing with commutes, just dealing with life and trying to balance everything, yeah. I think, can be made easier with a sort of hybrid hybrid model. For, for. Listen, you sound as though you're going to be a fantastic boss. If I'm ever out of a job, I'm going to come <laughs> knocking on your door. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to be doing for you, but we'll talk. <laughs> I will find something. <laughs> yeah, find something for me to come and do. So uh, You mentioned that you also lectured, so you're not officially like a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, but... Did you enjoy it? What gives you hope for the future? Yeah, yeah. So coming through. Lecturing and teaching. So like I said, I've always held jobs as an academic tutor, teaching tutorial classes. I've also guest lectured a bunch of different subjects, you know, especially on the sort of mechatronics side, uh, where the lecturer just said, oh, you know, you're a can you can you give us a lecture on how all this stuff works or a lecture on control systems, that sort of thing. I think tutoring is my favorite by far. You get a lot closer to the students. And there's just like a real satisfaction I find in... Um, teaching people and making knowledge accessible in a way that I didn't feel it was accessible to me when I was trying to learn it, right? Because yeah. when you're trying to learn something for the first time and maybe all you've got is a textbook and you can't actually understand what's being written down because it's written in a really convoluted way, learning can be just so painful <laughs> or yeah. uncomfortable yeah. is a way I'd sort of phrase it. And I think that discomfort is a natural part of the learning process. Yeah, I find a real satisfaction in getting people to those answers and that understanding a lot quicker because it means you could just have more interesting conversations with people and, you know, they always come with a new perspective when they're learning something. And that's something I think I've picked up through teaching all the time. No matter, no matter how much more experience I have teaching a topic to a student, they've mm -hmm. always got a question, they've always got a perspective that's new to me and can help me increase my understanding of the topic. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, and they're the future and, you know, I think when building a business and building any sort of team, you know, that recruitment and teaching has to be continuous. You let that lapse for a second and you'll find, oh, you've got no one to work for you anymore. And, you know, so I think it's just a really, it's a really pivotal part to sort of how I, how I operate at this point. And, and so, yeah, it's just really satisfying. <laughs> it's very interesting. I, I listened to Andrew Huberman. Do you know who he is? No. He's a neuroscientist. You must subscribe to his podcast. He's absolutely brilliant. He talks to all sorts of amazing people and he spoke to David Goggins. And David Goggins is his hard, he was a Navy SEAL. He had a terrible upbringing and his, his motto is just do it. He's as hard as you can get. Like he wrote a book as well that I read. Anyway, the point of the story is he's completely ADHD and he can't retain any information. And he was telling Andrew Huberman that literally when he has to memorize something he actually has to write out the whole book and memorize it like that that is the only way he can learn anything and this guy's a multimillionaire, and he's now a para he's a paramedic so he clearly doesn't need to work but he's mm. on the journey of helping people and he was telling him the story like how he 
he learns and it doesn't seem to deter him and his wife Jennifer asks him questions and the way she learns is just by asking the question and listening to the answer and she memorizes it so you know I think people we all learn very differently and I think when you start comparing yourself to other people and how quickly they assimilate information, you can look at yourself and think you're actually very dumb. It's not. It's just <laughs> different styles of how you learn information. Yeah, yeah. I, I realized uh, quite quite a while ago in my PhD that I'm actually a very slow reader. Not, yeah. not a great reader. You know, some people can scan a text and sort of have an immediate understanding. And especially people in software, I find, do this really well. Like, they'll get a new package and just integrate it with their stuff where yeah. uh, being sort of... I mean, the way I think is like generally I need to understand it from like very basic principles, really, yeah. really, really low level. And so it takes me a long time to learn things typically. Yeah. Once I've got it, I think I've got it really well, yeah. but a lot slower to pick things up, I think, than a lot of other people. <laughs> so this is a fantastic message because look, you've got your PhD. So I, I think that's wonderful for people out there that, again, we all learn differently. And it, it doesn't mean, what's that saying? If you judge a his ability by to climb a tree you'll always think he's mm. a complete idiot like you mm. know there's some saying like that but yeah 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 we all have our strengths and how we do things so tell us about crest robotics and how did this all happen yeah sure so um founded the company in three days it'll be one year so you know, congratulations one year yeah. i'm still yeah. here <laughs> um so really i was in a situation where i just submitted my phd um and the company i was working for at the time space machines had an unfortunate delay in their launch and i'd always intended to get them through to their first their first launch and i think that's happening actually next couple of months so congratulations to them yeah. but all goes well and I'd sort of always intended, you know, just to get them there and then start my own company, right? This was yeah. my plan. And with the delays, I thought, well, I hadn't intended to be around this long, right? Like, I, I'm really sort of eager to get onto this because there's a huge, like, opportunity in robotics, you know, like, the amount of different types of robots people are dealing, developing for different situations is just, um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a boom. There's so many different things being developed and nobody knows what's going to come out on top. Nobody knows what's going to survive. And it's a, it's a really exciting time to be in it. And the particular technology I've been working for, like, it's still quite young. Right, so we we develop sort of dynamic robots. So when when I say that, you can think sort of you know boss dynamic, agility robotics, any of these sort of like very dynamic walking machines. So not many people really understand how to build them, how to program them. Like it's a really multifaceted approach. You need to understand the mechanics and the control structures, and everything's got to come together in a beautiful harmony to make something actually. Work. But nobody really has nailed the use cases for these just yet, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, so there's probably like ten different humanoid companies up and coming. And I'm not actually sure of most of them, yeah. but they use similar principles of these dynamic robots to get them to look and climb. So I'm not developing humanoids. I, I don't personally feel that their, their use case or complexity is justified for what, what we're trying to get them to do. But the design principles and research on dynamic robots that's come out of, out of research in this field lets us design machines that can be lighter and stronger and way more capable than most of the robotic systems being developed currently and most of the sort of static industrial arm sort of cousins that are robotics. So I started Crest with this information in mind, right? This is my technical background. But I started Crest as a way to do more with robots, right? I told you when I started my engineering degree, I've always had this opinion that, you know, robotics are the tools of the future. You know, this is how we as a species even progress beyond what we And Crest is my way of following my ambitions to do exactly this, right? And what I try to focus on, what I try to do with robotics is essentially find jobs that are repetitive 
and monotonous or components of jobs that are repetitive and monotonous and develop new tools to assist those people. And so, yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's really just it. So that's what I want to do. And, um, you know, I've got this background where we were looking at power transmission tower maintenance, which is, you know, part of the job is sandblasting back these giant steel structures that hold up our high voltage energy network and repainting them. And yeah. it's extraordinarily expensive. It's not done enough because we can't afford to do it. Yeah. And it's really quite dangerous and monotonous and repetitive work. And so I've been working with the companies and contractors that actually do that. They're really excited for a solution. And currently, you know, we're pursuing how do we actually, how do we actually get there? Uh, That's fantastic. You know, immediately, of course, I'm thinking you're displacing people in jobs, but you're not because clearly they don't want to do these jobs and it's taking them away from actually other things that they should be doing. Yeah, yeah. And so... It's funny, like you do, you do encounter this a lot as a roboticist. You know, I was, I remember recently, actually, I was just at a cafe and there was a guy with a, with an eclectus, like his beautiful green eclectus parrot just shit sitting on his shoulder. Yeah. Now, a big part of my PhD was uh, like how do I'm, I'm studying parrot basically biomechanics and trying to understand what we can learn, apply that to robotics. So, you know, I've been doing that for the last six and a half, seven years. So when I see someone at a cafe with an eclectus parrot on their shoulder, I naturally have to just like start a conversation. Of course. You know, like it's just as and you do. It's so normal. That's right. That's right. And, and it turns out a lot of these guys, you know, had done a lot of laboring, you know, one was a property developer, does a lot of hands-on work. One, one had done a lot of sort of really dangerous work at heights doing fabrication on construction sites. And his initial response was, oh, you're taking people's jobs, right? People are quite apprehensive about that. And it's absolutely like, it's absolutely something as a roboticist, we need to be aware of the effects of our, our action. And, you know, the response I usually have to that, when you explain the viewpoint that robots aren't, you know, they're not as intelligent as you, they're not as capable. As you. All we're trying to do is find a part of your job that you don't like. And we're doing that part. It's simply a tool for that part of the job. Yeah. And that's all, right? So when you explain to them, oh, look, we're just doing, you know, some sandblasting or painting or cleaning. Uh, yeah. We're just doing the really repetitive part. They usually come around pretty quickly. And he did, right? He was like, oh, okay. He was pretty quickly after I was like, oh, we're just doing that repetitive stuff. He's like, oh, yeah, that's all right. You know? Well, and so course. if I convince a random person with no invested interest at a cafe that uh, I'm doing the right thing, then I'm hopefully on the right track. And I think the other part is people tend to overestimate what a robot can do as part of the job. So for example, a sandblaster, Sandblasting is a part of their job. It's not their whole job. A painter, painting is a part of their job. It's not their whole job, yeah. right? And so people and roboticists developing solutions that come with this perspective that, you know, if I get a robot to sandblast, I can replace a sandblaster. Probably need to actually go out and talk to a sandblaster, right? Because yeah. it's it's a part of their job, you know? Like I've been out, about, been out on site with the guys doing the sandblasting and like, there's half a day's worth of setup before you even turn on the machines, all yeah. right? Of complex and intelligent and dexterous work and like, how do we get set up and this is a unique situation, right? Like, how do we ensure everyone's gonna be safe? So, and that's pretty much all jobs, right? Like, I think no, so, yeah. no job is just the repetitive monotonous task, right? Yeah. So what we wanna do is give people sort of agency, extend their agency so that the machines are operating through them, right? They're supervising machines to do the really repetitive part so that they can either operate more streams or just be safer or just spend time actually contemplating, you know, the safety and well-being of themselves and their co-workers. And that's what we, that's what we aim to do. And maybe potentially be quicker. Who knows? You know, like, I mean, just it could happen. But I do think it's very important for anyone that works in robotics to actually take the time out to explain to people when you get this sort of feedback to explain. Now, I, I, I don't, 
you know, of course, you don't want to put them offside and tell them they don't understand robotics, but, oh, you know, course. educate them as best you can. Yeah, yeah. And it's usually, yeah, it's really just usually an acceptance that, no, the robot is not going to be as skilled as you yeah. uh, and you're in command. But I think that's really important. Mostly one from an adoption perspective, right? If people, if I'm developing tools that people don't want to use, then I don't have a business, right? Mm. People people need to want, uh, want the machine. They use. It's also would be a bit arrogant probably to assume that I understand their whole job well enough to, to do anything about it, right? Like they're the experts. They've maybe spent 20 years doing the job. They know they know it back to front. And so all I'm trying to do is assist in some way that's useful for them. Yeah. And most people are pretty respe- receptive to that. Yeah. So from uh, starting your business point of view, like this a year ago, so very new for you, uh, mm. did you know what to do? Have you, was it covered off in your course how to, how to start a company? Because I'm sure... <sighs> All engineers, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to start their own company. Yeah. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, um, not even not even a little bit. So, actually, PhD has prepared me quite well, quite well for this journey. Yeah. Uh, because you know, yeah. PhDs generally you don't have a lot of funding. You have very limited support. You have huge yeah. uncertainty because you're usually doing something that nobody's ever done before. So, you know, that can help depending on the right mentors and supervisors you have around you. And certainly, I'm very grateful for the team I had with me during my PhD. But Starting the company is really it's very similar, right? You, you don't yeah. know at the start exactly what your company is going to be. You've got an idea, right? But you don't really know where it's going to go, right? You don't really know if it's, if, if it's generally been put through its paces uh, to the sort of scrutiny that you need it to be to have a success. And so there's a lot I've learned in the past year about you know, what the company is and what it's going to be and where we're going and what narrative I should be telling people and all sort of things that I... I wasn't even aware, right? So in my mind, when I started, I've been working on this problem uh, for the last six and a half years of how to get robots to climb these complex tool structures and perform work. And it was all industry funded to start with, right? The the PhD came from an industry funded problem. Right? The Tokyo Electric Power Company came to the university and said, we're spending way too much money on this. We want robots to be able to climb these repetitive yeah. work. And the guys that do this work in Japan, like they have a very different process there, but it's just, it's insanely hard work. You know, they straddle yeah. these towers and they'll be straddling it with their legs while operating angle grinds. You know, they could be 60 meters up in the air, just straddling a pole with their legs, operating an angle grinder to take wow. back rust and paint. It's insanely tedious, dangerous, like, the guys that do this work, all the respect to them, I, I don't think I could do it. It's just it's too it'd be too yeah. physical for me. And at heights, which is I'm sure you get used to the heights, but I'm not <laughs> yeah. So I thought, look, that that's evidence that there's a market need, right? If if they're willing to come to the money uh, university and put down a few million dollars, there's there's strong evidence that the market exists. And so being part of my job as starting the company is to make sure that that's valid. Find other people yeah. have the same problem. And in Australia we have the same problem. Yeah. So you know, this this each each tower, there's about sixty thousand maybe across the country. To to strip back and repaint one tower costs you about four hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Right? And you have to do every five to twenty five years, depending on how close to the coast it is, because it rusts, right? And the last thing we want for our high voltage energy networks that you know distribute power around the country is for them to fall over. So inspection and maintenance of these things it's a huge operational expense for every asset owner. But just due to the cost of doing the tower, we can't we can't actually do the maintenance. And so the strategy is essentially to run the asset into the ground and replace it. Yeah. Which is not particularly sustainable and it's extremely expensive and disruptive to replace the tower as well. Uh, yeah. this this you know, we're kind of relying on the fact at the moment that our entire energy network was primarily built sort of 50, 60 years ago and it's starting to show, right? And yeah. so the the need for maintenance is actually increasing quite quickly. And at the same time, we're spending billions of dollars on new infrastructure to connect renewables to the grid right yeah. everyone you know the renewables get the spotlight 
but the construction projects of the HV uh, power lines, I think a lot of people kind of just expect that to happen, but it costs a lot of money. You know, it's just a huge investment. Um, and so what we're hoping to do in this industry by reducing the cost of maintaining capital is essentially take money out of the replacement capital budget, push it into OPEX and be able to maintain the entire grid, entire network, uh, essentially indefinitely um, lit for those for those structures. So this 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 huge build that we're going through at the moment is a one time investment and the actual upkeep and operational costs are, are much, much lower. It's the same strategy we want to apply eventually to civil infrastructure maintenance across the board, because again, civil infrastructure maintenance, it's probably like the least sexy thing for any politician to talk about ever. But it's, mm -hmm. it's their ass if it's not done, right? People start to notice if there's potholes in the roads or if a bridge falls down, it suddenly becomes a very, very important. So, <laughs> you know, we want to be there in the background with robotic tools, making that cheap and efficient and safe to do so that, you know, we as a society can just, nobody else has to worry about it. It just, it just yeah. happens in the background. And I feel like that's how it, that's how it should be. So many things to discuss here. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of a, um, you know, why, why anyone would have any problems with robotics doing this sort of work. When you think about high voltage towers, it's incredible. But oh, I, yeah. do, I do think in Australia, certainly energy companies are using robotics more. And by that, I mean drones to be doing inspections and other Absolutely. things in the field yeah 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 um so drones are being used for even for actual work so there's a company called infravision that um is working with transcript i think they've they're sort of international now that use drones to to do new stringing of conductors yeah. uh, i think that's excellent right like and transcript have been a real sort of supporter of them in the beginning and now they're using this process for all the new all the new ones so they use you know drones to take a string and then that string to pull another string and eventually you work your way up to basically the big heavy conductor that's actually carrying yeah and um, also, and also um, just they've been using helicopters just to check the the actual lines and maintenance but I think they're adopting drones now but yeah so helicopters a... they can't use them anymore they, yeah. there was a death a few years ago now and since then in Australian networks I think or at least new South, essentially from operating okay. which is in stark contrast to like overseas in the US when they're clearing vegetation around the lines they'll literally hang about a six meter long chainsaw from the bottom oh. of a helicopter oh. and just fly it past the trees <laughs> which is just wow the courage of those operators i yeah. you know, gotta yeah. give it to them um that's an efficient solution and they apparently don't have many incidents so you know but we don't do that here in australia unfortunately. no i think i think australia is one of the highest rated to health and safety um operators in the world yeah and look this is one of the reasons it's a really good place to start a robotics company because we do value life really highly we do yeah. sort of value safety and comfort at work quite high and robotics is really here to support i know in the the, the energy industry and one of the reasons we're there it's it's interesting it's it's hard finding information on this exactly right because most of the statistics you look up will basically talk about mortality mm -hmm. and the energy industry mortality is extremely low incidences are quite low right but the linemen we're talking to have said yeah, look, maybe in my 16-year career, one person has had a sort of like a permanent from from something. But every single person that stopped climbing, stopped doing the job, has done so due to injury. Okay. Every single one, right? And not 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 just one of them. Every single person, yeah. and that that could just be age. That could just be like, you know, this is such a physical job that uh, it does not need to be a large injury to prevent you from from doing from working. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, you know what might not have planned for it. You could be in your 40s and 50s, and all of a sudden, you know, that knee ain't ain't doing what it used to, and you've got to start thinking about a new career, right? Yeah. You, you might have spent the last 20 years, you're really, really proficient at this, and all of a sudden, you can't do that job anymore. Um, now, obviously, 
and this is a perspective I take, it's only a component of that job yeah. before, anymore, right? It's the physical component, which is really why when I'm sort of developing solutions, what I'm looking to do is take out that physical component, right? Not really take it out, but make sure that they don't have to do that as much or so that they've got some tool to continue doing that work where they can be safer and more comfortable um, because it means they can operate longer throughout their careers. It means you increase accessibility to the job. Unsurprisingly, a lot of linemen are quite fit young men, right? But you take out the big sort of physical component to these jobs, or at least you supplement it quite a bit. And all of a sudden the accessibility to that job becomes a lot more, which means you could just have more people. It's, it's easier to get more people to do this work. That's quite an interesting thing because you know, as our life life expectancy increases, and I I was at a talk probably four years ago where someone said to me, the person that's going to live to 150 years old has actually been born. <laughs> but you know, where if you think of your careers and work that you can do, you're going to be doing, and obviously for going back probably 30, 40 years, if you were an accountant, you were an accountant. That's it. Like that's what you mm. did. But I don't think it works like that anymore. You know, people qualifying today could probably potentially have four or five careers that they and they may need to requalify and it's fine that's what they do yeah absolutely and so you know i think a, a big part of that training is making sure that they can be really versatile and lean yeah. on what i consider really to be the human strengths things like intelligence so yeah i think i think technology and robotics is is a way to get there yeah, uh, definitely. so very exciting news you made your first sale of two uh, robotic units into the energy sector tell us a little bit more about that yeah absolutely so um this isn't our full poly parrot climbing robot this is a, a much much simpler device so i was doing you know being a good a good founder and entrepreneur and doing my customer discovery and trying to learn people's <laughs> problems and figure out what i could build and you know what we do at crest is it's not a developer particular robot right like we 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 apply uh, a systems engineering sort of strategy to problems and we we use sort of the development of dynamic robots right machines that really can sort of move in the way we do we apply that sort of design principle and so I was talking to you know, Transgrid and some people that work there and they had a particular issue where they essentially need to pull stuff along transmission lines for these conductor replacement exercises they've got. And there's some limitations to the things that currently exist on the market. And they said, it would be great. We had that thing, but it could also do this, right? And it's essentially just uh, something that pulls stuff along conductors, but can also get over a space or obstacle. Uh, and they said, if that existed, we would buy it. And so I whipped together a prototype uh, I put together a little brochure that said it'll have these capabilities, um, and there you go. They've said great. Con congratulations! We'll <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And so I'm currently, you know, in the middle of prototyping it. I've got stuff yeah. all over my desk, like yeah. little components and things yeah. that, uh, you know, just um, we're in the middle of, you know, building this um, <laughs> this um, this prototype. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to sell two of these units, two of these units to Transgrid. Uh, and that's going to give us a, a small runway for me and my my sort of other engineer, Rip Patel, uh, to continue developing this and other other sort of. Uh, well, animals. congratulations! Yeah. That's really good. And you mentioned Polly. Tell us about Polly. Yes, so Polly is really my idea. So it's, I've got big ambitions and near ambitions with Polly. So Polly is sort of my idea of a sort of multifunctional, work-capable robot that can integrate with people to do dangerous dangerous work, right? And really shed some of the burden and cost associated with danger. So. Polly is a parrot-inspired robot. So I told you I did my PhD looking at parrot biomechanics. Yeah. Uh, and that was really because I was trying to find a way to get up and climb these tall structures. And what I noticed was the lorikeets and the cockatoos visiting my balcony every day and how they sort of manipulated things with their beak while standing on two feet. 
and how they use their beak to climb around. And I thought, oh, that's that's a really interesting way of doing it. I'm going to check the literature and see if anyone's studied it. Nothing. In the 120 years we've been studying animal biomechanics, nobody has said, oh, parrots, that's actually a really interesting way to climb. Yeah. Um, so I, I said, well, I'm going to do that. And fortunately now there's an, there's an excellent group of biologists um, that inspired by some of my early papers uh, are actually studying this now. What oh, we're wow. finding is incredible, right? Yeah. They're, they're really efficient at climbing. They sort of, the three limbs means they're less mechanically complex, which means the build materials can be a bit cheaper. Um, and the way they, there's a lot about their, their mechanics that make it work, but essentially they have a larger capacity to work than let's say like a quadruped, yeah. uh, like a four limb. And so, it's just a really exciting and new way to sort of climb complex structures, on, like hold tools to competitive work. And so that what that's Polly's job, right? Polly does not do the whole job of people. Like I said, uh, in line with my philosophy, it's just a tool to do a particular part of a job. Yeah. Um, I intend it to be sort of supervised. So for the high voltage maintenance, uh, tower maintenance work, essentially what I imagine someone doing or what we're working with our contractors to, to enable eventually is they'll clip on a laser blaster to the, to the head of the robot and they'll plan out the work and they'll get everything prepared and they'll say, all right, robot, and you get a touch screen maybe with a tower model on it. Go, you're going to go here and start laser blasting and I'm going to get the paint bucket and the other tools, maybe this other robot set up with painting tools to chase after it. But it's really just, it's a supervised tool so that you can stay on the ground whilst the robot goes up there and does the real. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the operators are the people that are doing the work. They're responsible for that. And this responsibility in robots, I think, is, is a thing we, we often don't touch on as well. From my perspective, at least for the moment, Everyone, people demanding work are going to want to be a person responsible, right? Mm. Uh, since me, like I'm in the company, is not a professional at painting towers. The professional needs to be the contractor they're already painting. Mm. So I'm just trying to enable them with newer capabilities to make it cheaper and safer, more comfortable. Uh, and in this particular instance, hopefully, um, you know, increasing uh, our, our resource pool to sort of connect. But long term, so that's that's what we're doing in energy. Long term. The goal is really, I want to, I want every tradie to have a robot to help them do their work, right? You know, we had a plumber in the bathroom recently was regrouting the tiles and he was on his hands and knees for about four hours grinding out grout to replace it. And I went, oh my God, yeah, that's tedious. And at the end of the day, I still want his professional eye looking over it. I want to, I still want him to make sure he's doing the, the job, but how long, how long can a person reasonably do that through, you know, I think, I think they do an excellent job, but I don't know many tradies that don't complain about things that start to niggle at them after wow. you know, 20 years in the job it's, it's oh, yeah, really no. physically demanding right i'm just so... thinking of his knees already like replacement knees that's right that's Babies right are short yeah. right and and we don't we don't often think about those costs when we're going into right and you don't really get one because it's such a long time frame you don't really even think about it you think oh, i can you know i can make a career out of this you know uh, i'm looking to talk to more and more people that have experienced these long-term injuries i'm trying to learn more and more about sort of repetitive and strain-based injuries um, my sister is a, um, an exercise physiologist and is, has researched and done masters in this particular space. I'm trying to get more in with her on, you know, how what what injuries exist? How did those people get those injuries? And what can I do? To, um, yeah. So that's the sort of stuff, right? What what I'd like to see is the plumber come in. He's got his little robot sidekick, uh, and he goes, "Oh, yeah, okay, we're gonna need to we're gonna need to regrout probably." Mm -hmm. Attaches the regrouting tool, the grinder head to the robot, and says, "All right, you go there. You'll be there for three or four hours. I'll come back." I'll go do another job. I'll just take it easy. Whatever, like whatever, yeah. whatever is efficient for, for that person. Um, but like the idea is to take take some of that really repetitive. Or I was watching I was watching construction site the other day and just the guy sitting there with a caulking gun, right? Whole new construction, whole new build. How many corners do you have in the house? All right, oh my cork every single one of them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it's 
it's it's small parts of the job, right? Their, their jobs are really broad, but we want to give them the tools to do that really repetitive stuff so that they can, first and foremost, just think about safety a bit more. Uh, it's, it's often not recognized enough that physical work is mentally draining, mm. right? So people, people, especially people who've done a lot of mental work like I do, uh, think, oh, well, you know, it's physical work. So I'm mental. No, physical work is incredibly, mm. uh, like, like I sort of have experienced recently when I did my 600 kilometers around Tassie, <laughs> I couldn't think, I couldn't think after the top of the first <laughs> hill, like, I'm not particularly fit, right? But like the, the sort of mental duress that sort of intense physical exercise and physical job gives you, you know, it makes it hard to think about things like yeah. safety, right? So we want to take away, not take away, but like complement some of that physical, physical so that they can look at their colleagues and say, are we operating safely? Are we operating efficiently? How can we make sure that everyone's going to go home today? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's, you know, I think everyone should have that right to feel safe and comfortable. Definitely. So do you have a mentor? Yeah, so I'd say we have a few, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, give a shout out to Tim Parsons uh, because yeah. we've been doing the Space Fast Start program at Cicada Innovations over the last sort of. I think we're almost towards the end of it, and Tim has been excellent. Tim is not afraid to tell you to go back to square one when he thinks you need to, and that's yeah. certainly something I appreciate in a really big way because he'll 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 work with your basic assumption, lead you to your own. Um, so Tim Tim has. Well, a huge shout out to him. I always go, of course, and your parents, like this is a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my parents, of course, of course. My parents, well, yeah. <laughs> You're standing on the, the stage and first I'd like to thank my parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> So, um, you're a member of Robotics Australia Group. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, brief summary: Why you think it's important to be supporting the peak body? Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, strong advocate for sort of community approaches to to sort of acceptance and development of robotics in Australia. Right. So it's it's hard in Australia, like, um, and it's been really hard in the last year uh, actually starting a robotics company because every single grant that would have supported a company at our stage last year was either pulled or discontinued. And even grants that have come back around now, uh, like the MVP grant has come with the same sort of application overheads, a quarter of the quarter of the total amount of it makes it hard. Um, so first and foremost, I love seeing all the different sort of spectrum and community and different problems people are working on uh, in robotics. I think there's extremely exciting things happening in Australia, but I really appreciate that there's a body looking at after all those companies and advocating for those interests, uh, their interests, to advise policy and government on how we can better support it. Because like I said, I think robotics is a really, it's a way we can get to a more prosperous and safer future. Uh, I'd love to see actual development and companies starting in Australia because we have so much um, capability here. You know, we're, we're in such a good position to sort of leverage this. And without a group like Robotics Australia, helping the politician realize that we have this opportunity, I think it could be it could be wasted. So I really appreciate Robotics Australia advocacy basically for robotics in australia it's really important thanks Clyde. much appreciated of course um you know i'm the front for the company but we've got an extremely capable board in the background and all our board members are also uh, pulling their weight so thanks to them as well mm. any closing thoughts that you'd like to uh, leave our audience with yeah absolutely well what i'd like you to think about is what's a dangerous job what's a repetitive monotonous dangerous component of a job you're familiar and if you can think of one, contact me, because like I said, we're bringing a new design approach to robotics to make sure that they can get out into the real world and do some of this work. And uh, the more problems we find, uh, the better off we can be. So I just want you to think about that. Repetitive, monotonous, damaging sort of work. It's, we, we, we often focus on like something that's going to shred up, you know, severely 
damage someone, but it's like it's it's the long it's the long burn uh, wow. injuries that I think uh, they, that need to. So if you have any any needs, uh, you think a robot might be a good solution, I love people to reach out and just have a chat. We can talk about where they're good, where they're not good, and how a system. So to our audience, you there you have clients' invitation, and speaking of which, where is the best place for them to reach you? Yep. So you can get me on my LinkedIn. Pretty responsive there. Uh, just just hit the connect button and uh, I'll have a look. <laughs> Usually pretty friendly. Uh, or you can email info at crestrobotics.co and uh, that'll just clear to me. <laughs> Fantastic. Clyde, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you too, Nikki. Uh, to our audience, thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you're well uh, wherever you are in the world. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and I look forward to your company again next week. Mm-hmm.